You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Garun Engels, author of Elm Review and co-host of the Elm Radio podcast. We get into the design of static analysis tools like linters, uncommonly discuss trade-offs of gradual typing, and designing tools for build time performance. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, static analysis. All right, Jeroen, thanks so much for joining me. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick for people who don't know you? I'm Jeroen. I have a weird name, and I'm <laughs> used to people butchering it. I'm mostly known for my work on Elm Review in the Elm community, where I work. Yeah, Elm Review is a static analysis tool, which is probably going to be what we will talk most about during this episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a safe bet. Okay, so how did you get into that? I mean, did you just wake up one morning and you're like, I'm going to make Elm Review today? What's the story there? I probably did at some point, but before that, <laughs> I used to work on a Node.js project at work, multiple ones. I didn't like how a lot of bugs were happening in our production code. So I spent more and more time working on tools to improve our code base. And a lot of that work went into working with ESLint, organizing our ESLint config. So for those who don't know, ESLint is the de facto static analysis tool slash linter for JavaScript. So yeah, organizing all the rules, picking out which ones we, we wanted, and then also writing a lot of custom rules that were then published on NPM. So I think I wrote like 75 rules over the course of a year. Wow. Which is more than what I've written for Elm Review so far. <laughs> <laughs> At some point I discovered Elm and the best way for me to learn Elm since I didn't know front-end development because Elm is done for front-end, was to write a linter. <laughs> so that was actually how you got into Elm, was writing a linter for Elm. That was my first project, yeah. Wow. That teaches you about Elm in a very different way because it teaches you about like what are all the possible constructs of the language, what can you do in this language. Uh, a very different approach. Sure. Okay, so I'm curious, what were the kinds of bugs that you were running into that led you to write these you know, 75-ish ESLint rules? Because sometimes when I think about a linter, the first thing that comes to mind is things like conventions, like making the code look nicer or, you know, oh, you shouldn't stylistically do this or that. But it sounds like your main goal was actually not so much style and maybe readability as it was or, or consistency as it was like actually preventing bugs from happening. So I'm kind of curious what type of bugs we're talking about. It's been something like five years now since I've written that. <laughs> so enough. it's a bit hard to tell. For instance, I've written a bunch of rules for the Ava test runner, which is somewhat like uh, Maka and Jest, if you know those. Those were rules about how you should write your test. Like if you write your test this way, then it's not going to work as expected or it's going to be subpar, the experience. So a lot of rules to improve the quality of the test and make sure that you don't mess it up. Do you remember any specific examples of like a gotcha where if you wrote the test in a particular way, it wouldn't, wouldn't be great? Something like having two tests with the same name or having forgetting to call the done function in an asynchronous function asynchronous test, which is now handled differently. But yeah, stuff like that. And then also when I discovered Elm, I wrote a bunch about how to write JavaScript in a functional way. So remove all the features that make JavaScript JavaScript and make it look more <laughs> like Elm. So remove all the classes, remove the delete operation, remove mutation, fun stuff. So this is an ESLint rule that would essentially just say, don't use a bunch of these features. Yes. It's called ESLint plugin FP, and that is my most popular NPM package so far for some reason. <laughs> cool. So that is an unusual path into Elm, but I'm curious, did you end up after, you know, writing the linter uh, like Elm review, did you end up actually using Elm for like the stuff it's traditionally used for, like, you know, making UIs and whatnot? Yeah, I did. <laughs> cool. <laughs> when I wrote it, it was like late 2016, beginning of 2017. I didn't use Elm at work uh, at the time, and so I'd had a bit of a break, we can say. And I resumed working on it when I actually started a, a job using Elm, or I successfully introduced Elm at that company. And then I, I felt like the need for it, like we had Elm Analyze for... I started right after Elm 019 was released, 
there was no Elm Analyze and I've felt the itch to enforce some conventions that we had informally. And I remember like, hey, I, I wrote something that could be useful for this <laughs> at some point. And then I started working on Elm Review again. At some point in 2018, I started working with Elm full-time, using it for web applications. Right. <laughs> you wrote a blog post at some point about, you have some strong opinions about ways that like linters or, or static analysis tools like should and, and shouldn't be used. And, and for example, how that affects the design of Elm Review. Do you want to talk about some of that? The first one that comes to mind is giving good error messages. Like a lot of linters out there, they show you where the error is and they give you a one-liner explaining, hey, you should not do this. And having learned from the Elm compiler, because the Elm compiler taught me how to do things, how to explain things, I figured that was not enough. Like when you have a linter error, you usually want to know why this is an error and what you can do about it and why we even check for this error in the first place. So those are all pieces of information that I think are useful and that deserve to be in the error message. So not just telling you what went wrong, but maybe like, here's a suggestion for what you might do about it, or even like, here's the motivation for why this is this way. Exactly. Yeah. And some of that can't necessarily be part of the tool, right? Some of it has to be part of the rule itself, because it's sort of context specific. Yeah, all of that is part of the rule. It's just that the tool allows you to give all that information, which in most other tools, they don't. They just allow you a one-liner or a one piece of text. And if you make it too long, then it's going to be annoying for the user. So people keep it short. So making error messages more helpful, I think it's uncontroversial. Let's talk about a more controversial opinion. I think I read a whole blog post that you wrote about this, but about opting out of rules. What do you think about that? I think the blog post was about disabled comments, mostly. Right. Is that the one? Yeah, exactly. Most of the tools out there, they give you a way to disable a rule locally. Just with ESLint, it's, you add a comment saying ESLint dash disable, and then the name of the rule, potentially with some explanations. And I find that to be unhelpful to say the least. Why don't we start with just for people who aren't familiar, like what's an example of a disable comment in like ESLint, for example? Yeah, so for instance, if you have a, a rule that says no unused variables, you add a disable comment above it, above the declaration of the variable that you don't use, saying disable no unused vars, and then you don't get that report. And people will be like, yeah, but I actually want it because I spent a lot of time writing that code. I'm going to need it soon, or I'm sure it will be useful one day, <laughs> which is a more common case, I think. And the bigger underlying issue with disabled comments is that you get a lot of false positives. Static analysis is sometimes hard because you're missing some information, like what was the intent of the developer, or does it do something that I can't infer from looking at the code? For instance, in languages with macros or weird post-compilation transformations, if you have an unused variable, maybe that could become used. Like if you have some transformation that magically makes that variable used somewhere. And the static analysis tool can't tell that. It doesn't know about all that. You're bound to have some false positives. False positives are just a, a bane for every developer who encounters them. If you get a false positive, you want to get rid of them, either by fixing them, in which case it's not a false positive, actually, or by ignoring them using a disable comment, or by doing some very ugly hack slash workaround where the static analysis tool is just not smart enough to detect it anymore. And the issue that a lot of languages have is that there's just so many false positives that pop up just because the language is very hard to analyze. So if you make the language more analyzable, more knowable, then you will get less false positives, which will give a much greater experience to your users. Are you suggesting that JavaScript is a hard language to analyze? Because that doesn't sound like JavaScript to me. I would expect it's a very simple and straightforward language with not a lot of edge cases. Am I wrong about that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're very, very wrong. <laughs> In the case of JavaScript, the main tool is uh, ESLint, and it analyzes the project file by file, 
Meaning if you look at another file, you don't know what happens in the file that imports one or the other. So if you have like an export in your module, you can't tell whether it is actually used anywhere in the project. You also can't know how this function will be used. Like if you want to make sure that an argument is always a JavaScript array, for instance, and it's the function is used in a different module, well, then you're out of luck and you're going to need to do some assumptions. And assumptions lead to false positives. So in the case of Elm Review, we all rules can look at all files of the, together and they can have a nicer overview. They can see the big picture and they can get all the information that they need to make the proper analysis. And just because Elm is in general not a very static, very explicit language, it is a lot more knowable than other languages. Before Elm Review, there was Elm Analyze, and Elm Analyze didn't have any disable comments, just like Elm Review. And that turned out to be pretty okay, actually, surprisingly. When I designed Elm Review, I was thinking, okay, let's try it that way as well. Let's try not adding comments. And what that leads to is mostly better rules, just like higher quality rules, or just saying, okay, we can't implement this rule because it would have a lot of false positives, or it's not something that we would like to enforce. Like it could be used as a search tool, like where can you find smelly code that you can take a look at, but it's not going to be something that you will want to enforce in your CI. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's sort of like it creates a bit of an incentive for you to really think hard about whether this is like a rule, like a rule rule, or just something where it's like, well, people should use their judgment on a case by case basis. Maybe they should do this. Maybe they shouldn't. And if it's the second thing, then you probably don't actually want that as a rule. Code style rules are usually in in that category. Like people disagree. One will think, well, code should be written this way. Someone else will be code should be written that way. If they don't agree, then you should not make a rule, for instance. Yeah. In Elm test, there was a similar sort of design decision when I was making the like version two of it that came up around the idea of ignoring tests and saying, like, I'm going to skip this test. One downside of doing that is that sometimes you want to ignore a test for like workflow reasons. So you're like, I want to skip this test for now, but later on, I want to come back to it and like remember that I, I had skipped it and actually fix it. But you might not remember. You might just like in a lot of languages, a lot of testing systems, you just say like, ignore this test and that ends up getting checked in. If it doesn't get caught in code review, but oftentimes in code review, you look at it like, oh, well, they ignored this test because they don't think it applies anymore, or they're planning to get back to it later. Like maybe somebody catches that, maybe they don't. Or even worse, especially if you have something that's like ignore everything but this test, which is a useful (laughs) potential thing to have. You really don't want to accidentally check that into your code base. Yeah, that happened to us quite a few times in the JavaScript project that we had. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So actually one of the rules that I wrote in ESLint was no only rule, no test only or no test skip. There you go. So what I did in Elm test is basically we have those annotations, but as long as those are in the tests anywhere, it'll never say all your tests pass. What it'll do instead is if tests failed, it'll say, okay, these tests failed. If all of the tests that are actually getting run pass, then instead of saying test run succeeded, it'll say test run incomplete. It'll say this many passed, but there were this many that were skipped. So non-zero exit codes, it'll fail your CI. And it's like, you need to go back and either uncomment those or fix them or delete them or something. Yeah, the status code is really the difference with the other tools because they will all tell you like, hey, yeah, you skipped this many, but they will still succeed. Right, exactly. And so far that seemed to have worked out pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. The main downside, you know, I want to be honest about the trade-offs is that if you have some code, because really like if there is, you know, some set of tests where you're like, well, these aren't going to work for this check-in, but you know, over the course of the next couple of PRs, let's say, I'm going to end up fixing it. Basically, the only way to do that in Elm test is to like actually comment it out, which works, but that does mean kind of like if it ends up sticking around for longer than anticipated, you know, you're not because it's commented out, you're not getting like type checking or or anything like that on it, so the code might drift even further. But at the same time, I don't know. I kind of like the incentive of like this feels kind of dirty having this commented code out. I feel like a sense of urgency to like get it out of that state and get it back into the test suite that I don't really feel in like Rust, for example, 
which I also use and spend a good amount of time on, where we definitely have, like in the, the rock programming language, the compiler is written in Rust, and we have a lot of places in that in the test suite that are just like ignored and have those tests have been ignored for months. I don't even know what, what all the reasons are anymore, like for, <laughs> for why they were ignored. That has made me wonder if maybe there's like an opportunity for some sort of annotation that says like, this test is ignored and you have to say why you have to every single time give a reason like this is ignored because part of this issue, giant refactor or something like that. So at least you could later on go back and review them or something like that. But I don't know. Yeah, it's always very scary because again, this is close to a disable comment. Like this is a test disable comment. It's a slippery slope, I think. But in both cases, we have a situation where the trade-offs involved have to do with just like incentives. I mean, as programmers, we're all human. We're all dealing with deadlines. We're all dealing with time pressure and all that stuff. In some cases, for me as the programmer, I know what taking a shortcut or doing something that's like makes sense in the short term. I know that over time, those are going to accumulate and make a mess. But my brain is just wired to be like, well, yes, but I got to stay focused and I got to do this thing and I got to get this shipped or whatever. Sometimes I just appreciate having a tool not give me the option to take the shortcut and just to say like, well, okay, actually the fastest path to get where I'm going is to do the thing that takes slightly longer, but will end up making the code base better long-term because then I don't have to like use willpower to do that. It's just, there's no willpower. It's just like, that's the only path. (laughs) Yeah. Now, having said that, I remember something that we were talking about the other day was about linting tools or just tools in general, really, whether it's static analysis or compiler, something like that sort of blocking you, like making it so that you cannot proceed until you have satisfied this thing. You gave the example of like, I just want to debug my thing. I haven't fixed all the problems with it yet, but like, I still want to run it. I don't want you to fail the build. I want you to pass the build so that I can try out this thing and see if I even like it. This is something that we've actually been like from day one with the rock compiler trying to do at every level of the compiler. Like the philosophy is, and I don't want to claim we've succeeded at this because The experience is not where I want it to be yet. But the basic idea is, yeah, we should be a non-blocking compiler if we can be. And so what I mean by that is, let's say that I am writing my program. Like, Rock is a type-checked language. It's not gradually typed. There's no dynamic typing features. We could go on a whole interesting tangent about that, actually. (laughs) I love it already. (laughs) (laughs) It's all type-checked. But if you have like a type mismatch or let's or like a naming mismatch, you write some identifier and it's like, that's not the name of a real thing. You know, it's maybe a typo or something. The compiler keeps going. It writes down like, hey, I'm going to tell you about this, but it's not going to fail the build. In fact, it's going to go through every other stage of the compiler and do code generation and everything else. And what it'll do is right at that spot where the error happened, it'll just say, well, if you run your program and you actually get to here, we're going to have a runtime error because I don't know what to do with this invalid identifier. So it basically replaces that in the code with like a little, okay, this is now a runtime error if you actually get here. But for all other intents and purposes, like, you know, we know it's an error. We're going to tell you it's an error at compile time. We're just not going to block you from running your code anyway, if you want to. The goal is basically, and, and we do that with the type checking too. If there's a type mismatch, we say, okay, we'll report it as a type mismatch and we'll insert a runtime error. And that's the same thing that we'd want to do with like testing, linting, all those things is basically try to make it be the case that if I have made some set of changes to my code, I should always be able to run that code and get as far as is possible until we get to a point where it's like, well, look, there's just an error here. I don't know what to do because it's broken. But maybe you never get to that code path. Like maybe you're like, I fixed everything in this one section of my code base. I want to try out just that one feature and see how it works. And maybe I know that like I made a breaking API change. There's a million errors in my other modules but I just want to try it out and see if it's nice, you know, if it runs as fast as I was hoping it would, like maybe I'm doing a performance optimization, or maybe I'm just like, I want to try out this new design and I want to see if it if it actually works properly before I commit to going and fixing those million other things. Like I really don't want to make that much of an investment if it turns out that the end result sucks. And there's really no way to do that without having the ability to try it out. Yeah, I like the idea. So you can refactor things, for instance. Yeah, and test it out on a small bit, try it out in production or in development mode and see how that goes. Yeah, prob- yeah. Hopefully not in production. Right, try it on like the, the real full application, right? But in the end, when you're actually going to compile it in production mode, then the compiler will stop you, right? 
Right. So the idea would be, again, we go back to like, this would produce a non-zero exit code, but it's still going to actually produce the artifact. So it's like, you've got your built application. You can actually run the thing. But if you're doing it in a build and the build's like, hey, if we get a non-zero exit code, you know, fail CI, then it'll fail. So the idea is like, you can try it out locally, but if you push it, it's going to be like, no, no, <laughs> this is not done yet. You, you need to actually like finish all these, you know, things. And this does get into like, gradual typing and dynamic typing and stuff like that because really one of the critical differences between dynamic typing and static typing in terms of like fundamental trade-offs is with dynamic typing the dynamic part means at runtime and it partially means the types can change but it also means the type information is there at runtime that has a performance cost period the fastest possible statically typed language is faster than the fastest possible dynamically typed language because the dynamically typed language has the additional requirement of carrying around runtime metadata about what the types are. Whereas the statically typed one can, has the option to throw that away and not have that around at runtime. Yeah, unless your language compiles to a dynamic language. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, I, I'm talking about, you're right. So, so Rock compiles to machine code, but like in terms of performance ceiling, right? Like what's possible to have the highest possible ceiling, you got to compile to machine code. And if you compile to machine code with runtime type information around versus not, there just is a performance cost to keeping it around at runtime. When I think about what are the big things that static types and dynamic types have going for them, I've in my career used statically typed languages and dynamically typed languages. One of the things that I always miss when I'm using a statically typed language is the ability to do things like I want to write a test that maybe doesn't totally compile yet. Maybe it just, you know, it, it doesn't quite work yet, but it still partially works. Yeah, like I've written the first three lines, they should be fine. And then some other code, I still don't know exactly what it is, but I don't want to comment it out or I don't want to remove it but I still want the test to run real quick. Or maybe like the, the code within the test itself is fine, but rather that like I have an error somewhere in my code base. Like I still want, let's say I wrote, you know, 10 tests for this thing I'm trying to fix. And I've got some compilation error somewhere in my code base. I'm like, I don't want to deal with that now. I still want to run those 10 tests and see if they pass or not, because I don't want to go deal with, I want to deal with those compilation errors later after I've finished dealing with these, I don't want to context switch to that. I want to like focus on running these tests right now. And every statically typed language I've used doesn't have that experience. It's like, I want to run my tests. Like, nope, can't run a single test at all anywhere in the entire project because there's a type mismatch somewhere. And it's like, whatever you wanted to focus on, you can't. You have to go switch contexts to fixing that type mismatch before you can come back and remember what you were doing on the, on the tests you just wrote. Haskell does have a flag you can give the compiler. It's like dash dash defer dash type dash errors, something like that, that does this like converting them into runtime errors thing. But it's it's only for type errors for some reason. Like it does there's lots of other types of errors you can get that it doesn't defer. And also it's it's not really the default. I definitely think that in terms of user experience, that's an area where at least for historical reasons, if not necessarily like innate requirements, like dynamic languages just have a benefit like that. Having the option to do that is just strictly better than not having the option at all. In my opinion, I, I don't see that as like, like we were talking about incentives earlier. I don't think being able to run your tests whenever is like something that it's useful to like discourage. It's useful to be able to run my tests. Like if that's what I want to focus on right now. And I do want the reminder of like to come back and fix the other thing later, but I want to be able to do that in whatever order makes the most sense for, you know, <laughs> what I'm doing. As long as you get a reminder at the end, I think it's fine. Speaking as someone who writes something that you run after the fact. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Right. At some point in the process, I want to know about it. But there's a difference between knowing about it and being blocked on it without any control over like when I can unblock myself. I, it's like, you know, you have to do this now before you can work on another thing that's also broken or, or, or needs work on. And I think this is right now the main case. I mean, I don't see people really talking about it in, in these terms, but that's the thing to me that seems really appealing about a gradually typed language is that it's at least able to facilitate the experience where you can run your tests without the type checker, like bypass the type checker and say, like, just run my test because a gradually typed language is backed by all the dynamically typed runtime type info stuff. So if you skip the type checker, the code still works. 
So my hypothesis is that gradual typing is not necessary. You can get that same experience by just having a type checker that inserts the runtime errors only on an as-needed basis instead of inserting this entire machinery of all these runtime types and all these runtime checks to see if the types are wrong in all these different places. You can still get the maximum performance, like the higher performance ceiling of static typing, which both dynamic typing and gradual typing have to be a lower performance ceiling because you have to have that runtime type information. That's just part of what the the words gradual typing dynamically type mean. Can we get the same experience in terms of workflows? And I suspect the answer is yes, but yeah, it's it's not fully baked enough yet in Rock for me to like claim that we did it. <laughs> but we're trying it. In a dynamic language like JavaScript, I think the linter would be the one to remind you, hey, you forgot to unskip this says, hey, you forgot to make these type checker or static analysis tool used as a type checker. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point about like, you know, you can have different tools tell you about things. At the end of the day, like I personally I'm not that particular about which tool tells me just as long as I find out. You know? Yeah, th- there's a lot of trade-offs <laughs> about which tool should do what. Sure, yeah, absolutely. When people talk about like quote-unquote types versus tests, it definitely seems like there's a lot of made-up arguments that like nobody's actually saying there. Like people say like, well, when you talk about types versus tests, you know, like, but who actually is like specifically who is talking about that? I'm sure there there exist people who are actually saying that. But when I think about it, it's like, both of those are like a type checker and a testing tool and a static analysis tool. All of those are to me providing fundamentally a similar benefit, which is before I actually run my program or ship it to end users, they tell me about potential problems and they tell me about different types of problems, depending on, you know, they have each strengths and weaknesses. All of them give you different guarantees because each of them can analyze the code in a different way that the others can't. And by summing them up, you get more guarantees about what your code should be doing. Yeah. And I think there's definitely even further that you can go with those ideas, like formal methods and stuff like that, which I don't know much about. Yeah, me neither. But I've seen some pretty compelling demos for certain use cases, but I haven't actually myself really dug into it. But the idea makes sense of... This is another way, like in the same way that those other tools have certain strengths and weaknesses, formal methods are another thing that have certain strengths and weaknesses that the others do not have. So they're not like a, you know, a catch all like, oh, this will just rub some formal methods on it and it'll, everything will be better. It's like, no, there's like certain particular things that it's, it's going to be good at that there is just no substitute for if you want to, you know, have good checks about those things. They just, they don't, the other tools just don't do that. (laughs) Or it's going to be very hard for them to do it because they don't use the right approach. A common thing that people will say is if you have a really good type checker, you write a lot fewer tests, which makes sense because there's a lot of things where I remember when I was writing JavaScript that I would write a test and some of the tests would be checking things like what happens if you give it undefined? What happens if you give it null? What happens if you give it this invalid thing or that invalid thing? Does it blow up or does it handle it gracefully? And those are all things that I had to worry about it potentially doing. Whereas in Elm, it's like, the type checkers already got that covered. There's no point in writing that test. It's not, it's the test won't even compile. <laughs> the test won't type check. I have fun memories of writing those kinds of tests as well. <laughs> and those just, just disappear, yeah, as you say. Right, and it's like, that's an example of a different tool just being better at verifying that type of thing. The big thing that I always hear about formal methods is like, they're about checking your design rather than your implementation. You could, I guess, theoretically write tests, like maybe property-based tests, fuzz tests to to check your design, but like, they're just not going to be as good at it <laughs> as like some of these like formal methods tools, because it's not what they're designed to be good at. So a related topic to all of this is the difference between project specific tests and lints and things like that, and sort of like ecosystem wide ones. So an example that comes to mind is unused imports. So let's say I have like in Rust, for example, Rust compiler will actually tell you about unused imports rather than like Clippy is the the most widely used (laughs) Rust linter. And so I think that there's an interesting question of like, what should go in the compiler versus what should go in the linter? And like you said earlier, there are trade-offs between those. And some of the trade-offs have to do with implementation details. Like for example, maybe it's easier, like in the rock compiler, we do it in the compiler because as we're going through and like 
canonicalizing, which is like doing name resolution on all of your your names. Uh, we just write down like, okay, this one was used. This one was used. It's like this, right where it's defined, we write down like, check to see if this was used mm-hmm. ever. And then when it's used, we're like, okay, yep, that one was used. And then at the end, anything that was added to the list of declarations, but was not actually ever referenced, it's like, okay, well, that's unused. So we'll just report that. One of the things we talked about the other day was some of those things get like a little bit trickier. Like for example, an unused field on a record, or like you have a sum type and one of the variants is not used. Those types of things, if I remember right, I think Rust's compiler doesn't do those, but I think the Clippy does. I could be misremembering that. But something that I've definitely thought about is like, well, how expensive is that operation? How tricky is it for the compiler to figure out whether a record field is unused or not? Like that's kind of a different thing than figuring out whether a variable is unused or an import is unused. And one of the trade-offs there is, well, quite often in my workflow, I am asking the compiler to like, you know, type check everything, but maybe less often am I asking it to like run the full linter. It's not like I necessarily, every single time I'm running my build, want to be running every single tool in every single way. I prioritize performance and like getting fast feedback over getting all the feedback all at once. Yeah. If you have an unused import, for instance, if you, and you want to try out something and that causes the import to be unused, then you don't want to be blocked, right? You want to be able to, to test out what you were working on with because you, you're going to uncomment that code in a minute once you've made sure that it works as expected or does not work as expected. So that's something that I would probably not put into a compiler just for the flow, as you say. Although in the case of Rock, you could... Right, tell you about it, non-zero exit code, but still succeed in compiling, yeah. Yeah, and in production build, still fail. So that's a nice trade-off, I think. But then there's also, in some cases, where you don't want to report unused code. So for instance, if you have generated code or if you have vendored code that you don't want to touch too much because you want to keep it as close as possible as the original implementation you don't want to report unused things in there like for source directory you don't care at least in the case for elm where you got dead code elimination in a javascript build maybe that makes more sense so in those you actually don't want to report anything so in elm review there there are ways to ignore some directories or some modules for some rules. But if you do that on a compiler level, you're going to need to configure your compiler to say, hey, I don't care about this check in this particular location, which adds more configuration to your compiler. And usually, at least, the compiler is a very generic thing. The least customization you you give it to, the better, I'd say. I might have been biased by Elm. And the configuration in my opinion, goes better in a tool like a static analysis tool, which you're bound to need to configure anyway. I hear what you're saying, but counterpoint, if it's baked into the compiler, then you would find out very fast in, like if if I'm the author of the vendor library, I'm using that same compiler. So I wouldn't have any unused warnings because my code just wouldn't work. (laughs) If, right, like if I wrote this library that somebody else is vendoring, I would find out about all those unused warnings and I would uh, have to fix them in order for it to work even for me, like to, to return a non-zero exit code. So, Yeah, but if you vendor some code and you touch it a tiny bit and then some things become unused or you only use some of the functions in there, but now all the other functions that were exposed in that library have just become unused because you never used them. Yeah, I guess that gets into sort of like a question of package boundaries and like how you're doing the vendoring, which is a little bit of a rabbit hole. But I, I see what you're saying there. So what about generated code? I mean, if if I'm generating code, I don't know, I like to think that I would be generating the code to not have, I don't know, problems with unused variables. Like I would think that I would just only generate code that was only generate variables that were actually being used. <laughs> well, for instance, imagine your your design team gives you a style guide, like a, a color palette. They give you all the colors, red, 10 variations of them, purple, 10 variations of them. And same for 10 different colors. And you're only going to, in practice, use a portion of them. And imagine that the design team gives you a JSON file or some specification, and you generate code for your language using that. Well, now you're going to have a lot of unused code in there because you're not going to use all of the colors. Okay. 
Well, this maybe gets into automatic fixing, right? Maybe. Unused import seems like definitely something that a tool can just fix, right? In a, in a mechanical way. So presumably, if you're generating code from a JSON file or something like that, you could have your build for that generated code, generate the code, and then run an auto fix for like unused imports or something like that. Sure, but th- that's going to be expensive. That's going to be slow, I mean, potentially. Potentially, sure. Although, to be fair, maybe it's better to pay that cost once and then everybody else's builds are faster because there aren't, you know, the compilers and having to deal with all these unused variables that don't get used anywhere. <laughs> well, at least in the case of Elm and Elm Review, like compiling as a generated file is super fast. So, and removing them is slower. So, like, it's not worth spending that time. And also, like, you generate it and then you start using a new color that wasn't previously used. Well, now you need to regenerate the code again. Sure. Oh, well, I think you'd regenerate it anyway, right? I mean, if you're, do, if you're doing code generation, I would, I would think you would always want to start with the source of truth and then regenerate all the code from scratch, which would then include running the fix afterwards. Every time you make a small change to your code base, you would rerun the generation and you would apply the fixes again? Yeah, to be fair. That sounds very slow. <laughs> well, maybe if it's integrated at the compiler, though, it's, it's not slow. Like if the compiler knows how to fix imports, like just thinking about the rock compiler, we already have the formatter built into the compiler, like the equivalent of Elm format or GoFumped or, or Prettier. Since that's baked into the compiler, I mean, we already have an in-memory representation of like all of your imports and everything else. And so if we've detected that one of them is not needed, we can just delete that one and then be like, and format, <laughs> spit it all out. So at that point, be not much more expensive, I don't think, than doing a formatting operation. But then you could also just apply it when you're building, right? Sure, yeah. Like if if there's no cost to doing it, then you can as well do it when you're building for the production. Exactly. I mean, you need to have some sort of flag, I guess, like CLI flag so that it knows like, okay, don't, don't just run the checks and generate the code, but also like apply any fixes. But that's theoretically doable. There's also just, if you generate that style guide or color palette file, you can look at it because it's just source code and you can see what is exposed and what you can use. But if it's been fixed, if it's been removed, then you need to look at the source of truth, which can be a lot more unreadable, potentially. Oh, I was thinking in terms of, let's assume, and, and Rust has this and the plan is for Rock to have this too. Like, let's assume you have a concept of local packages. So like, it's not in a repository where it's just like on my local file system. And then within a local package, Anything that you say is exposed outside that package is not treated as unused. It's like, oh, the whole point is, right? So then the unused stuff would just be the code generator naively, even internally to its own module, for example, is like, these are unused because that was the easiest way to generate it. If you see source directories as generated packages, then it joins the ranks of vendored code. Exactly, right. Yeah. And then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This stuff's really interesting to think about because one of my big goals with Rock is to work backwards from a user experience. The goal for the user experience is like, you're never waiting for anything. Everything feels instant. You get instant feedback on everything. And then working backwards to how do we make sure that each step in the process is sufficiently fast that that's actually what it feels like in practice? (laughs) Because that doesn't just happen. And in fact, it, it almost seems like like the other thing you and I were talking about the other day was like how to make a linting tool run really fast. And it definitely seems like, unfortunately, there's there's somewhat of a, what is the mantra? It's something like make it work, make it something, make it fast. <laughs> I don't even remember what the three things are. Make it work, make it good, make it fast. Something like that, yeah. And I think that ordering does not work. You will not make it fast as the last step that's just not because because the problem <laughs> is that you can very easily design yourself into a corner where going fast is just not possible by the operations that you've permitted. Yeah, maybe you want to make it good or make it work. Think about how to make it fast, make it good, still think about how to make it fast and then make it fast. <laughs> I guess the point is that I don't think it's good advice because it seems to suggest that these are discrete steps. You have to be thinking about performance from minute one if you want it to end up being fast. Otherwise, you're just going to end up painting yourself into a corner very easily. Yeah, you need to have some overview of how can I make this fast in the long run or not limit my implementation or API 
to be so, to be slow, right? Right. A good example of this is like, let's say that the way that you were designing your linter is like, okay, I'm just going to give you complete access to the entire compiled abstract syntax tree or concrete syntax tree, the, the entire syntax tree. Here it is. It's just this giant data structure and go ahead and just traverse that whole thing. And then just tell me what, what rules failed. That sounds like a really simple API. That's just going to be really slow if you have a whole bunch of different rules running. Like if you have 75 different rules, all of which are doing that, that's just going to be doing a ridiculous amount of tree traversals, you know, each one, one at a time from scratch. And there's just not much you can do to speed that up. In contrast, if you have a concept of, for example, like one of the optimizations we talked about was, and this is apparently what Elm Review does. I mean, you'd know better than I would, but <laughs> apparently. but is like, well, well, do you want to actually, do you want to describe what Elm Review does instead of that? Like here's a whole tree and just go ahead and traverse it. So Elm Review gives you a, a way to build a rule where you say my rule, it's named blah, blah, blah. It will collect this kind of data. And then I'm going to, I'm interested in visiting the expressions. I'm interested in visiting the list of imports. And then the tool uh, will call the necessary functions at the right location. And it will discard or skip portions of the AST if it doesn't need to run to analyze it for this rule. It can just run over the entire tree theoretically once, no matter how many different rules you have. And then at each stage, call just those functions that apply for whichever particular rules. Potentially. This is not the way that Elm Review does it, but it could. Right. But the point is, from a design perspective, you've left the door open for that as a performance optimization. And other designs don't even leave that door open. I'm reminded of the famous quote, which I think is, honestly, it's it should probably be considered a misquote, which is, premature optimization is the root of all evil. Albert Einstein? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Knuth, but you know, yeah, you know, whatever. If you look at that quote in context, like what he's talking about is really a better quote would be premature micro optimization is the root of all evil. Like he's talking about like in your for loop using I plus plus instead of plus plus I when plus plus I is like a little bit faster. He's not talking about don't think about performance. In fact, he says he's talking about like small, really like micro optimizations, not macro level What's the performance of my whole system going to be like if I design like this? And I think the advice to not focus on micro-optimizations early makes a lot of sense because you might be just spending a lot of time optimizing something that gets thrown away. It is perilous for performance if you don't think about the overall performance as part of the earliest, earliest, earliest parts of the design process and be thinking about performance constantly throughout the design process and making sure that you're not accidentally making it impossible for yourself to optimize things past a certain point in the future. Because once you have a bunch of people depending on this API, that's it. There's no opportunity to (laughs) performance optimize it because if you do, you're just going to break everyone's code. But maybe the visitor pattern is actually the slower one. Who knows? And that's hard to do to tell. That's a fair concern, although from what I've heard, it's faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it also makes for a nicer API, I think. So that's also yeah. worth it. Sure. I'm speaking in terms of like people I know who have worked on uh, TS Lint instead of ES Lint. And like apparently that like switching to that was a really big performance improvement. There's an interesting question of how do you incentivize making it easier for people to write faster code by default. And something that's interesting to me there is in like the linting space is there are some rules where what you're looking at is so narrow that it's actually maybe the most convenient to provide something that looks like a helper function, but is also secretly a performance optimization. For example, let's say I've got this function and I'm like, oh, this is like a regular expression. And I want to say, if you give this regular expression a string literal, I want to just look at it and make sure it's valid. Like, let's say this is a language that doesn't have a first class regular expression syntax. Okay, so that lint rule, you could say, all right, we could just have a helper that's like, if this gets a string literal, I want to run this validator on it and like tell people if it's if it's obviously wrong. But that can actually basically mean that like rather than having to you know even give you a subset of the tree and say like, okay, look at it and run a conditional to see if it is a string literal and if it's not, do nothing. If it is, then run this validation. You can just be like, 
well, I'll just take care of all of that and I can batch them all up and be like, oh, I found a string literal. Let me just go grab all the rules that look for a string literal being passed to this function and just run just those rules instead of having a bunch of, you know, 75 conditionals. You can have just one and then a list of things that <laughs> that actually needs to run. Those type of things. Just having the visitor pattern also enforces somewhat that you only visit nodes of the AST once. I think I've seen this in ESN, but I might be wrong, but you, you could imagine that you're given a the AST and then you analyze a portion of it for one purpose and then later on you reanalyze it again. And that's just Yikes. <laughs> not performance effective. For sure. Cool. Anything else we should talk about in terms of linting, static analysis, incentives, any of that good stuff? Yeah. So you've written Elm tests, you're writing in rock. So you know about giving the right incentives to people so that they do the right thing at the correct moment. I'm at least aware of it. I don't know. I can't claim to always do it right. but <laughs> I didn't say you did it always right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I hope you will. I wish you the best. Do my best, yeah. If we go back to the disable comments, right? That is a tool that people use when they have false positives or when they want to go fast and don't handle this case right now because they need to ship, they have a tight deadline. And for me, that is like a wrong solution to a problem. One of the problems was that you're getting a lot of false positives and that is potentially solved by higher quality rules or more noble language. The more noble language is hard to get for most people. <laughs> it, like it's not something that you can have an effect on. Better rules is hard for the author, but that's the more doable approach. What I've been trying with Elm Review recently was a different system, which I call the suppression system, where basically it allows you to do gradual adoption of rules. So you add a new rule, for instance, like no unused variables, because you didn't have it before, and it reports a thousand errors. Let's imagine that that rule doesn't have in automatic fix, which you should also have in your tool, in your static analysis tool, because it's super useful. <laughs> it would actually like I've talked to people at Sonar Source and I asked them like, what is the best feature in static analysis tools that you think is missing in too many of those? And they said fixing. Ah. I was expecting a very different answer, but the bar was l much lower than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Because I've always had fixing, I think. So yeah, you have a lot of errors and you can't fix them automatically and it will take you a lot of time to fix them. The solution in a lot of languages would be, in a lot of tools would be either you disable the rule for a lot of files, which removes all the reports and you don't know why those have been ignored. Is it temporarily? Is it because it's a false positive for, for the rule? Is it because you were in a rush? And the other option is to add a disable comments everywhere and you get the same errors. Like, is, was it for a false positive? Or was it because of the deadline? And the solution I came up with, and I think it's been done in other places, like the better tool also works on the same premise, where basically you get the list of reports that the tool gives you and you ignore them temporarily. You, you write somewhere that, hey, this file has this many errors for this rule. At least that's what the solution I came up with, Elm Review. I think Emberlint does a very different solution, but it also has somewhat of a, the, the same idea. The thing I like about it is that if you want to go fast, you can go fast, but at least you will have a trace somewhere that says, hey, this was ignored and you will have to look at it at some point. And the other thing I quite like is that it's going to block you if you do worse, like if you add another error, if you add another thing that will be reported, then the rule will say, hey, stop it. Please fix some of them so that at least you don't get worse from the point of view of this specific rule in this specific file. So it's, it's a nice system in the sense that you, you can't get much worse with it. You can't worsen things. And then if you fix these issues, then they automatically get removed or decremented so that when you do things worse again, you're reminded of those. And that doesn't litter all your source code with disabled comments. And that also doesn't 
cause you to ignore new errors. Because if you disable a rule for a specific f file or folder, then any new rules, any new errors that would be reported for those are ignored. But with this system, you still get them. Yeah, so the only way you, you could actually sneak like a new usage in is like somehow you, you like did a trade where you like you like fixed an existing usage and then introduced a new one, which I guess like is fine if you want to do that. But yeah. If you you must not have run Elm Review in the meantime. So if you do Elm Review Watch, then it will be noticed really quickly. A swap is probably not that bad of a trade-off. I guess it's kind of neutral, yeah. Yeah, th that, if that's the worst thing that can happen, then I think it's a very good system. Yeah, that's a cool design. I, I don't know of any system that's using that. Ember Lint or Ember Template Lint uses it in a different way, but it didn't make the same trade-offs. Every time you, you change something, you need to regenerate those deprecations or those suppressions, and that leads to different results. I see. Yeah, we would have used that at work. Like one time we were migrating to a new API and it was like, I think it was like there was a new release of the HTTP package. It's like four years ago or something. And so what we did was we made a little package called like HTTP.future or a module called HTTP.future. And it was like, had the new API, but like implemented in terms of the existing one. And so we would go through and change everywhere you know like one module at a time to to use the new one we didn't have elm review at the time but Sorry. It, it was just like a little script that would just scan the file and see if it was importing http instead of http.future and we just made a list of like here's all the known files that are doing this you cannot add a new file that does that but yeah this sounds like a much more sophisticated version of that that would just let us not just on the file level but even like within an individual file make sure we're not using the the deprecated thing. There's actually an Elm review rule for no deprecated. So anything that has been flagged as deprecated through one way or another will get reported. It works very well with the suppression system. Exactly. Yeah, because that's that's the key is it's it's not enough to just say like, oh, all of these things are deprecated. We also need a list of like, what are the things that haven't been converted yet? So the whole team can do it incrementally. And having the, all of these in separate files also makes it easier to know where to find those errors if you really want to go, okay, it's Friday afternoon, I'm going to fix all of those. Then you can go ahead and tackle them as you want. That sounds awesome. Well, I'll look, look forward to that feature coming out. <laughs> oh, it is out. It is out. Wow. Yeah. yeah you I don't can even have to it. look out. It's in the past. Awesome. Very cool. So what I meant to say originally is you need to give the right incentives, right? So if you have dis disabled comments, you're not going to look for alternative solutions because you have kind of solved the problem. Right. And yeah, after like two years, I came up with that idea or I thought about it for two years. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. I think it worked out quite well. And now we have no disabled comments. We do have ways to ignore errors for source directories, for vendor code, or just for some of the specific files. Like, for instance, some of the rules you don't want to apply to test code or to some special codes. Yeah, all of that without disable comments. And I feel very happy about that. <laughs> I feel like it makes for a nicer experience for everyone. Awesome. Well, yeah, this is really fun. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I learned a lot and lots of stuff to be excited about. Yeah, I'm excited to test out Rock at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. Rock, R-O-C-L-A-N-G dot org. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.